Hello, hello, hello. Welcome in, my people. It's how are we doing? It's good to hear me, right? Because the last time this series happened, you really couldn't hear me. I was not a human being. I was a sick pile of rags. Correct. And I've been born again. That's that's Uh, beautiful. So this is our 1967 Year in Music series uh, for February. So if you are just listening to these... First off, what you doing? We got a whole we got a whole main series of podcast episodes that you are just missing out on. Uh, but if yeah. you are just listening to these, welcome. Welcome to the Totem Talks family. Exactly. We value and respect you and would like you to listen to the close to 100 episodes of other stuff we've got in the bank. Yeah. Wow. So, That's a lot of episodes. It is, right? Too many. Oof. Too many. Let's be okay. done. Yeah, this yeah, is I it. Agree. We're done. No, but... Uh, that's it. I'm very excited because I get to actually kind of weigh in a little bit on this. Now, yeah, that'll be nice. I have no information. Nick has done all the research. Correct. This is his baby. Right. Uh, what I am here to do is go, whoa, basically. Yeah, that, that's really good. <laughs> to that, react. That was pretty good. Thank you. I, right. I really did my best. Well, then I'm just going to get into it. We're going to get started. Uh, and we can start February right on the 1st. Oh, okay. And now there are a lot of like little themes uh, that we're going to kind of track throughout the months of the year. Uh, and one group that we talked quite a bit about on the January episode was Jefferson Airplane. Sure. Uh, because they were involved with the human being and a lot of these um, counterculture movements that were going on in San Francisco in particular uh, throughout January and throughout the rest of this year, really. Spoilers. Uh, I know, I know. Uh, but on the 1st, on February 1st, Jefferson Airplane releases their second album, and their first album with singer Grace Slick, uh, and their most successful by far album, uh, Surrealistic Pillow. And I could talk to you guys about the music on Surrealistic Pillow, which is really good. Uh, it's it's definitely a highly lauded album for a reason. Uh, it's been ranked, you know, interestingly enough, Rolling Stone originally had it ranked 146 on their top 500 albums, but it fell all the way to 471 on the most recent list. Wow. Yeah, that's no love for the airplane. Yeah, that's kind of strange, but a very influential early psychedelic album um, that, you know, it's it's a huge part of what the counterculture in 1967 is, is this record and this band. Absolutely. And I'll say, you know, you know that a psychedelic album is truly influential if I knew of it before Nick told me about it. That's a great. And I have heard and listened to Surrealistic Pillow all the way through before Nick was like, you need to listen to this album. Right. So, uh, so without getting really any further into the music, somebody to love White Rabbit or the really big hits, but you should listen to the whole thing. Um, there is, of course, controversy here that I previously Always. didn't know that much about. Uh, so, Pat, would you happen to remember the other band that I talked a ton about in January as a part of all these festivals who's like a really big deal in 1967? Honestly, the, I was so sick. The only band I remember you talking about is the Monkees. Okay, okay. So it's not the Monkees, but played it was headlining all these shows and, and festivals and things that were going on. Uh, the Grateful Dead. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. And The Grateful Dead uh, and Jefferson Airplane are both in the process of recording their albums around this time. For Jefferson Airplane, 
it's their second album, but it's their first with Grace Slick, which is like becomes their iconic lineup, their sound uh, with her in it, obviously. Uh, and the Grateful Dead are looking to record their debut record. And they are on different labels. So there's just like a little bit of competition. The labels don't necessarily want want them, you know, too close or working with each other too much because they want kind of exclusivity for their group um, right. to make sure some of the sales aren't leaking over into one of the other bands. But anyway, regardless of all that, Jerry Garcia was credited on this record as the musical and spiritual advisor What uh, to the band. So which doesn't mean all that much uh, from what it's from, you know, what's being said. The issue, of course, arises that several different accounts exist of how much Jerry Garcia actually did on this record. <laughs> Some people say that he was the spiritual musical advisor. Other people have said that he arranged uh, several of the songs on the record. Some people say that he's actually recorded on the album and that's his guitar parts on up to three of the songs, including somebody to love. Oh, no. Um, so, yeah, no one, I guess, will really ever know for sure to what extent Jerry Garcia had his hands in this album. Uh, but, but it's I more never than even zero. realized it's more than zero. And I never even realized it was a controversy. So, like, to, to some extent, Jerry Garcia might have written, recorded, arranged a lot of the tracks on this record. Wow. Uh, which is exactly what they did not want him to do for his record company. Do you think that that is what got him the Ben and Jerry's flavor, Cherry Garcia? Or do you think it's more of the stuff uh, with Grateful Dead? I'm going to have to say it's 50-50. 50-50. Makes I think sense. that's the best I can do. Yeah. I'm with you. Uh, and I'm going to keep going through. I've got a lot of musical related yeah, stuff. Yeah, I want to let you know, Nick, we're now on the first. So we have 27 more days. That's true. Uh, I got a lot more musically related stuff. Like there were some other events to talk about in January. There's a few less of these in February, but I think the musical stuff's interesting. I'll just really quickly run over on the second. I don't want it uh, to overlook the fact that the Mamas and Papas released uh, a new record. Uh, they released Deliver, which at the time, the name of the record was actually kind of a joke about the fact that Mama Cass was pregnant. You know, huh. she was, uh, but not married. So it was a very big scandal. Uh, her pregnancy How was like a whole she? thing. Yeah, I know. It was, it was very upsetting that she would do that. Uh, rip. But anyway, that's that's really all I have said. Dedicated to the one I love was the big hit that came out on that record for yeah. them. Um, and the mamas and the papas are delightful, in my opinion. So you could listen to that, too, if you wanted to. But but the next record that I really want to talk about doesn't come out until the 6th, which is The Birds Younger Than Yesterday, which is also a very highly critically acclaimed record. I listen to it, uh, and it's very good. There's some more psychedelic influences creeping up because it really seems like uh, this move into psychedelia, especially for, like, California bands, was becoming a huge deal uh, as 1967 progresses. It's almost like if you're not at least a little bit into the psychedelia, you're kind of missing the times. Sure. Um, I would really like to mention uh, our dear, dear friend, Robert Criscow, because he he reviewed this record. I'm ready. So what Robert Criscow said about this record, uh, he called it the bird's first mature album, a blend of space flight twang and electric hoedown infused with the imminent glow of 1967, yet underlined with crackling realism, which I just think is a fascinating way to describe a record. Um, <laughs> well, he's a fascinating but character. He is. He is. Uh, and I will say this is um, 124 on the original Rolling Stones 
uh, greatest albums of all time. Uh, and then it was pushed back to 127 uh, in the 2012 wow. uh, reboot uh, of that. And I'm not sure if it's even on the 2020 reboot. Who knows? So go figure. Yeah, weird stuff happens. Okay. But anyway, I mentioned that there would be through lines. And those through lines are not just regarding groups like uh, Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead, but also a particular song of note. Uh, because I happened to mention an interesting little article that was written in the Daily Mail yes, uh, in January uh, last time about 4,000 holes being found in Blackburn, Lancashire. Uh, and on February 10th, the Beatles recorded A Day in the Life. Wow, so they and, were very topical with it. Like, yeah, they were they were right on that. A Extremely lot of the lyrics, topical. A lot of the lyrics were inspired by John Lennon, like looking through um, articles and newspapers and stuff like that. See what was going on. Oh, see, here's and the of thing. course it's a drug song too, because I'd love wow. to turn you on. It's it's all part of the, the same psychedelic culture that's going on in San Francisco, really. Oh well, obviously we know the Beatles dipped their toes sure. into psychedelia. Of course. <laughs> But uh, I, I would I was going to say we should do that for our album. And then I was like, that would be the most depressing album ever. Yeah. With no, the no way the headlines to... have been going on the last year and a half or so. No one wants to listen to that. <laughs> um, but what I think is really cool uh, about this song is the way that the orchestral parts are recorded, which was like a very confusing way to to go about it. They had a 40 piece orchestra. Paul, I believe, originally wanted like a 90 piece orchestra, but they couldn't put that together. Uh, and they were trying to figure out how to like fill up this section with something that was very avant-garde because they were kind of you know influenced by people like John Cage uh, to do something very interesting. And so essentially what George Martin had to do was to try to write out everyone's start on your lowest note and then essentially at a pace of your choosing sort of work your way to the highest note you can get to on your instrument. So what that is when you hear the, the the orchestra swells in a day in the life is all of the musicians just kind of working at various different tempos um, from different low notes on their instruments to the highest note that they could get to in the time. Uh, and that's what you how you get all that chaos, which comes across really chaotically. They did a good job. Yeah, I was about to say, sometimes the best way to write a song is to not write a song. Exactly. Exactly. OK, so I talked a lot about songs. I talk a lot about albums. Yeah. I've got an event. I've got okay. a big event. It happens on February 12th. And this is, of course, the big police raid uh, at Keith Richards' house. Um, huge, big deal with a drug raid on the Rolling Stones. Uh, and it all happens when Keith and Mick are, like, coming down from an acid high. And I'd really like to just read you guys the article from songfacts.com because I think it best encapsulates, like, the whole idea of what's going on. 1967, police raid Keith Richards's Redlands estate, where they discover various substances of a suspicious nature and arrest him along with Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful. The whole thing is a setup. British authorities, guardians of their longstanding monarchy, are uneasy with the Rolling Stones, who seem to be corrupting the youth. The UK Weekly News of the World loves stories about rock star indiscretions and sells a lot of papers with the story they run on February 5th under the headline, Pop Stars and Drugs, Facts That Will Shock You. The story recounts an encounter with Jagger where he pops pills and lures two young ladies back to his flat. Just one problem, it isn't Mick Jagger, but Brian Jones, who, because Brian Jones was like, I'm the leader of the Rolling Stones, people thought that it must have been Jagger because he was the lead singer. 
anyway, Jagger filed a libel, salt, libel suit against them, uh, against the paper, because he wasn't there, he wasn't involved. Right. Um, and then, essentially, they send a huge squadron uh, of police over. Uh, like, some estimates are as many as 20 officers. Uh, Jagger is charged with possession of meth, uh, methamphetamines without a prescription. Richards is busted because he his house, essentially, um, they're basically saying because he allowed people to do certain illegal drugs on his property. That's what he was being charged with. Um, and the other part is I mentioned Marianne Faithful was there and she was also arrested. She was wrapped up in a rug, but otherwise totally nude when the police arrived. Oh, my God. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was just the whole thing. Keith Richards was asked about that. Like the police were very upset. And he's like, we're not old men. We're not worried about your petty morals. Uh, but essentially, Keith ends up being sentenced to a year in jail. Mick Jagger gets six months. But that doesn't end up actually happening. They don't actually go to jail for that long or anything like that because the public was very much on their side. Um, and eventually, Jagger got commuted and the charges against Keith were just totally dropped. But it was a very interesting thing of like the, you know, upstanding moral conservative part of society was like, we don't like what these rock and roll people are doing with their drugs and their women and their whatnot. So we've got to find a way, um, you know, to, to send a message, essentially, it seems like through this drug. Rate. And there's one other thing that I have to mention, because the judge in this case, you just you just have to Google him. His oh, name was Judge Leslie Kenneth Allen Block. Uh, and the pictures that you will find are phenomenal because even though it's, you know, the 1960s and not the 1760s, he's got like his full wig rolled down to his shoulders, like looking straight up looking like a, a founding father. Um, and it's it's just great to look. You the can just tell wig. Oh my like gosh. this is a guy who clearly just like hates rock and roll and wants to send everyone to jail because they might think about doing the rock and roll. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, he's just the, the largest stick is, is up this man's butt. But anyway, uh, I'll move on past that because I can, oh, uh, and do. two days I'm later uh, on, on Valentine's day, what would you say is your favorite love song of all time, Patrick? My favorite love song of all time. Oh, man, that's a really tough question. There are so many wonderful love songs. That's true. I'm assuming did one come out on this day? Well, depends. Depends on how you can. I mean, it's not. It's. I don't know. I don't I know. wouldn't I necessarily call it a love song. You wouldn't but it, call it's it a about, love song. It's about the way that you're supposed to love someone. Rolling Stone might refer to it as the greatest song of all time. Oh, okay. So Aretha Franklin okay. records respect yeah. on February 14th. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, baby. Exactly. So on the 14th, she records that song. A year later, um, Detroit actually names an Aretha Franklin Day on February 16th, but we're not doing 1968, so you don't get to know that. For, strike it from your memories. <laughs> yeah, strike it from your memory. But on the 16th of this year, uh, and since we don't usually get to talk about jazz, uh, Miles Davis released the album Miles Smiles with the Miles Davis Quartet. And it's super highly critically acclaimed for great reason. It's such a great record. He's got Wayne Shorter on the saxophone, Herbie Hancock on the keys, Ron Carter on bass, and Tony Williams on drums. It's like uh, it's like a, an amazing quintet of musicians. They're so good, and it's such a great record, and you should listen to it. And then on the 17th, we have to go a whole nother day forward in time to get another record out. Okay, okay. So John Mayall and the Blues Breakers 
come out with a record called A Hard Road. This was a follow-up record uh, to what was a really, really popular release for them, The Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton, because, you know, as Eric Clapton was incredibly popular at this time, working his way through different groups, he spent some time with The Blues Breakers. The Blues Breakers really being a group where a lot of good musicians are in and out. A lot of famous people have kind of spent some time here, right? So, obviously, they're looking for a new lead guitarist. Do you happen to remember who replaced Eric Clapton in the Blues Breakers? Uh, hold on. I actually do know this. I thought you might. It wasn't John Mayall, because that's him. That, that is uh, correct. Peter Green. Peter Green is correct. Yeah. Very good, Patrick. I get my uh, gold star of the day. That's, that, exactly. So, Peter Green comes in uh, and plays guitar. Very good guitarist, obviously. Uh, but, as I mentioned, there are a lot of people in and out of this band, so... Oftentimes, they are looking for musicians. So there comes a time with uh, in Peter Green's time with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers where they're looking for a drummer. And so Peter Green knows a guy because he played in two other bands with him. And, like, I don't know how I never knew about these. <laughs> and I really desperately want to find a way to listen to anything that they recorded or played. I'll let you know if I can ever dig anything up. So he played in a band with this drummer uh, called Peter B's lunars oh and it was a trio as far as i'm aware okay where peter green was on guitar this fellow was on the drums and then peter b was peter bardens who was the keyboardist and future founder of the band camel hey you love camel i love camel and not only did they have peter b's uh lunars together but they also had a band called shotgun express oh which was the same three guys except for they had a vocalist named rod stewart Hey. Like the coolest undiscovered supergroup that's like never released music. You're not is Peter Bardens from Camel, uh, Peter Green, uh, Rod Stewart, and the drummer who I have not yet mentioned his actual name because it's Mick Fleetwood. I was about to say it's got to be Fleetwood Mac is the it's, one you're it's dancing Mi- around. Well, that's well, you, you've kind of jumped the gun here because the bassist in the Blues Breakers already was John McVie. So. <laughs> By the end of 1967, Green, Fleetwood, and McVie have broken off and formed and Fleetwood formed Mac. Fleetwood. Yeah. Poor John exactly. Mayall. He's I like, know. I just want I people to be in my band, and they're off being in other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Starting one of the most famous bands of all time. Right. But anyway, that's the main section. Nothing at all happens between the 18th and the 28th of note. Wow. But. Just skipping them. Now, I'll talk about a few of those dates uh, because it's time for the uh, the birthdays and extra albums segments of hey. the show. So I'll start with the extra albums. I'll knock those out of the way. Uh, a couple of other albums of indeterminate release date, but February 1967. Sure. Uh, Donovan's Mellow Yellow, a classic tune. They call me Mellow uh, Yellow. Yeah. Uh, Herman's Hermits released There's a Kind of Hush All Over the World. I don't have one from that. No. Not enough. Uh, Elvis. Man. No, fair enough. Elvis released How Great Thou Art, uh, you know, one of his full-blown uh, gospel records. Yeah, and, and you know what? One of the ones that I've heard, and I will mm. say, Elvis is one hell of a rock and roll blues singer. That man was born to sing gospel music. Yeah. In a way that he shouldn't have been. <laughs> and I don't even particularly love all kinds of gospel music. I've, I mean, I've been oversaturated with it in my youth. Right. But listening, it's very clear that, like, Elvis mostly wanted to sing rock and roll and mostly wanted to sing, mm-hmm. like, you know, the blues stuff that he's been singing. But sure. he really wanted to sing that gospel stuff. 
because he there was like a passion in his voice. Um, so oh, if you like gospel okay. and you don't already listen to Elvis's gospel, which I would be a little surprised about, right? Do it, I guess. Right. Yeah, good advice. All right, I got a couple more. The Trogs, famous for Wild Thing, released Trogla Dynamite. George Jones, famous country singer, releases Walk Through This World With Me. Uh, Tommy James and the Shondells release I Think We're Alone Now. Uh, and the Beatles released a couple of singles from an album that will later be named Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, the songs Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever come out of singles uh, in February. Good ones. Good songs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Classics. Uh, and now birthdays. I've only got a couple. Okay. Uh, and I had to, to really pull some strings to get some. So on <laughs> the 6th, uh, Anita Cochran, the country singer, releases uh, her birth. Her birth, I guess yeah, her life. Her birth, I don't know. She, yeah, she started living. More, more like she was released into this world. Yeah, she was released into this world. That's what I meant to say. Her debut uh, life. Yes. Uh, and then on the 19th, uh, Kate Radley, keyboardist from the band Spiritualized and wife of Verve frontman Richard Ashcroft was born. Oh. Yes. Interesting. And then the very next day on the 20th, I almost didn't include this guy, uh, um, Kurt Co- Cobain. Cobain. Oh, oh, yeah. He was Somebody in a band. Like that? In the, he was in a band in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, something you like know, that. You know the band that yeah. Dave Grohl was in before Foo Fighters? Yeah. The, he was the lead sure. singer of that one. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so Kurt Cobain was Kurt born on the 20th. Cobain. Wow. Uh, and then last but not least, on the 28th, a fellow named Marcus Lillington, who was the guitarist keyboardist for the band Breathe, who had a number two hit in the U.S. in 1988 with the song Hands to Heaven. Okay. So if maybe you've heard of that song, but you're otherwise like, who the hell is this Marcus Lillington guy? That's that's him. He did that one. And that is all. That is February. Come back for March. There will be more fun and exciting things to talk about then. And just as a little preview, I talked about the the back and forth with the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead. Uh, Grateful Dead's debut is coming out next month. So we'll talk about that then. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for tuning in, guys. Like I said, these are a little bit of a shorter form episode than our other, our other main content. Uh, so if you enjoy this and you're thinking, hey, I could listen to these two talk about music a little more. Uh, or if you're thinking, hey, I could hear that other guy actually talk about music because I don't talk about music on this podcast. Uh, listen to the other stuff where I do, in fact, talk about music. Yeah. So I'll listen to more f- really exciting polls, like me somehow remembering Peter Green was in that band. Yeah, I'm proud of you for knowing I, that. <laughs> Nick, I don't know when we talked about it, but I don't know how I would have known it other than yeah. us talking about it. And it's so weird. You know, like, it was hard for me to believe that the so raw, pure blues Fleetwood Mac guys were playing with uh, Peter Bardens, who, like, Camel is super proggy. Yeah. It just seems like a very different um, different sound. I, I wish that there were some recordings of, of those guys. Well, I'm sure you'll dig deep enough and find them one day. If they exist, I will find them. But thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune into the main content. Please, you know, like, comment, subscribe, whatever. Wherever you're listening to this, wherever you can do those things, do those things. Uh, Our social medias are listed in the description, so you can go ahead and hit us up and say, hey, yo. Uh, Use the hashtag Totem Talks to do that, though, please. Of course. Other than that, Nick, sign us off. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Ha, that was a fake sign-off. Got you with such a fake one because I'm doing the outro. Just wanted to punk you. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> Leave me alone. It was a great sign-off, though. I'm actually really proud of you. 
But real I'll quick though, I have to tell everybody to have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>